Good morning and welcome to our service this morning. Glad that you're with us here today as we're finding our way in today. Just a few things that I uh, want to uh, draw our attention to, a couple of opportunities for you, a few things that are in the bulletin. It's a very full bulletin this morning and uh, so hope that uh, you'll take a moment to uh, grab one if you haven't done so. Uh, especially as you uh, coming in or if you're leaving today, but uh, a few things. You'll notice in there, we've changed up the way we're doing the calendar for the month, and uh, this one is for the month of March, and uh, that is an insert inside of your bulletin, uh, really more of a listing of the dates. So what we find is that a lot of people have their own calendars that they use, whether digital or also uh, print, and so we've gone away from printing out the uh, the regular calendar and just giving the list of dates with then the anniversaries and birthdays and everything. So you'll notice a little bit of a different format there. And uh, I know the change is really hard for most people. So, uh, but at the same time, we hope that that's something that you can use in different ways. Uh, you'll notice there's some other things in there. Another insert has uh, something about the school and also uh, some other uh, needs uh, for donations as well as information about the Alaska trips that are coming up. So again, just things that are in here that are trying to keep you apprised, and I hope that uh, you'll take a moment to read through that. Uh, today we're going to be, in just a little bit, uh, recognizing some different ones that uh, are serving on our deacon board, and uh, this is the official board, and we're having this morning what we describe as an official installation of these men uh, as servants for our church in this year, and it's something that uh, we have sought to uh, remind ourselves of doing and coming back to that, and so in just a little bit we'll do that. And uh, so those men that are deacons, make sure that you're ready to come forward and uh, we'll get you up here in just a little bit. I uh, want to mention that uh, inside of the bulletin, uh, you'll notice that next Sunday is a baptismal service. We're also going to be observing uh, the Lord's table next Sunday. Uh, we are going to be inviting our children, those of you that have children, to stay until after the Lord's table. We're going to do that towards the beginning of the service, uh, just as a way of just encouraging conversation. We thought uh, as a staff, we've been thinking about trying to create some opportunities for us as families uh, to be able to uh, give opportunity of object lesson for our children and then as they go out and are back in the children's church time uh, for the workers to be able to kind of explain a little bit more and talk a bit more about what it is that we do in here and uh, to really excite the conversation about what Christ has done and how that's visualized not only in baptism but also in the Lord's table. So that'll be next Sunday and uh, make sure that you're aware of that. Uh, don't forget in a couple weeks, uh, Daylight Savings Time, which may be the last time we ever do this. Uh, I don't know. It depends on what the federal government actually finalizes, but uh, I've heard that uh, this may be the last time we move our clocks, and uh, so we'll see. But uh, that'll be in a couple of weeks, and uh, that Sunday, Doug Hodges is going to be here with us representing a ministry to the Dominican Republic and uh, preaching for us, and so looking forward to having him with us, uh, back with us again on March the 12th. So a lot of things here. I hope that uh, you'll take a moment to recognize these different uh, uh, opportunities and uh, to be in prayer and to be thinking about uh, ways to get involved. Uh, before we get into the deacon installation, I do want to note that uh, there is some information there about some of our missionaries, uh, the Danans uh, specifically, if you would, just remember them in prayer. They are serving in a part of India where 
uh, it has become very difficult and to the point of even threatened. And uh, so they've been looking at the possibility of transitioning to a different field altogether and uh, just seeing what the Lord does where there is still a very large population of people from India. And uh, so just be in prayer for them. As well, uh, the Dicks, uh, Joel and Debbie, are going to be heading back to Hungary and I believe on Tuesday. And uh, so be in prayer for them. Uh, They're not with us here this morning. At least I'm not seeing them. Uh, They were trying to visit some other family up in Virginia and we're heading back here this weekend. So be in prayer for them and uh, make sure that uh, you're uh, letting them know that email, phone calls and things like this is a way of just encouraging them. As well, uh, I didn't get it here in the bulletin in time, but uh, the wingets, pray for Cheryl. She is flying out and is going to be in Portugal and a lot of different regions and that's today. And Steve is, uh, he's left behind for a little bit, but then he flies out, I think Thursday of this week. And uh, so several of those that we support, very actively involved, David Prairie on the field, Caitlin Pollock, as far as I know, has made it back. And uh, so appreciate your prayers for them uh, even this morning. What I'd like to do this morning as we kind of take an opportunity here uh, to recognize these individuals who are serving as deacons of our church, I'd like to ask these men to come forward. And uh, I know that a few of them may not have been able to be here today, but uh, we want to mention their names. And I'm going to ask them to come and uh, make their presence known here at the front. And uh, I want to recognize them here this morning. Uh, the chairman is Paul Snyder, and uh, vice chairman of our board is Aaron Swan. And uh, these uh, men have agreed this year to help lead our deacon board, and uh, so appreciate uh, their leadership in that way. And with them serving is Brent Beasley, Burdette Bergen, and uh, then new this year, Tom Crum, Ron Gorsline, Nathan Grieve, and then uh, Gavin Gramacki. Danny Haig, which by the way, Danny Haig was just awarded a, a pretty nice award for 40 years of service in the fire department. And uh, amen. <laughs> I think that's a worthy recognition there. I appreciate him. And uh, then also serving together with him and the others, Tip Haynes, Alan Walker, and Ed Welsh. I'd like to also recognize uh, these five men who uh, had served a two-term session uh, for six years, uh, Dan Barry, Greg Estes, Roger Rich, Ed Scott, and Joe Irvin. I'd like to thank them as well uh, for serving uh, for those last several years, and uh, I know they get a breather, and uh, you know the time may come when we may ask again, and, uh, but we're going to give them a little chance to catch their breath, and, uh, but appreciate these men as they serve. And, as we think about the role of deacon, we're reminded that biblically this is an office that is prescribed to us as the church. Uh, it's given to us in recognition of character traits that signify a heart of service. First uh, Timothy reminds us that deacons then meet to be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid game, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also be first tested and then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. He goes on to say that they are to be husbands of only one wife and good managers of the children of their households. For these who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And so we present these men 
as individuals who have a heart to serve and to be representative of our ministry here and on the sense of the legal standing they represent even our our legal representation before uh, the the council of the city and before governments uh, they help us as a church and so i want to take some time to just appreciate them and thank them but also to have a time of prayer over them and to recognize uh, their ministry as they serve us as a church and to take some time for that this morning. And so I'm going to ask our, our staff, I've got several of our staff here, and we're just going to take some time and I'd like for you, and if you would, stand together with me. No, you can stay right there where you're at. And uh, I'd like for you to join with me in your heart, praying for these men as they uh, serve us, as we then recognize how uh, to... Uh, um, encourage them, but also as we carry the load together, appreciating what they do for us as a church. And so as we begin our time here this morning, uh, opening our service, but also taking time just to pray for these individuals as uh, we come together. Before we do that, one of the things that our constitution requires of these men is to publicly affirm that as uh, deacons that they hold to our statement of faith and are willing to uphold our constitution. And so, men, I'm going to pose the question to you. Uh, are you willing and are you in agreement with the statement of faith of Grace Baptist Church and also to uphold the constitution? Can I get a rousing amen from each of you? Amen. Uh, okay. All right. And uh, so as we begin our time here this morning, looking forward to this time together. Father, we're grateful for the church that you've called us to to serve be a partner with, to be participants in this local visible body, a manifestation of yourself to our locale. Lord, I thank you for these men and for the willingness to serve and to be faithful in carrying out the, the obligation of upholding, first and foremost, what we believe as a church and adherence to your word, but then also as we seek to unite ourselves around a common cause of reaching the area in the Chattanooga area and beyond uh, for the glory of Christ and the gospel. And I pray for each one of these men as they help us as a church by serving here, serving those that are within our ministry. And Lord, I pray that you'll bless them with strength, with wisdom, as they help us and come alongside those of us that are serving as pastors of our ministry here. Lord, thankful for their hearts and for their leadership, for how they model servanthood and how they truly lead I pray for their homes. I pray for their marriages. I pray for them as they serve in our community, that, Lord, they would maintain a heart that is passionate for you and your word, and that they would care one for another. So may, Lord, you be honored and glorified through them, but also through the rest of us, Lord, that we would also aspire to be people of character, that we would uphold the truth of your word, and that we would model you in grace and truth wherever we go. Lord, I thank you for the hearts of our people here and may we be a church that really does leave an impression upon the community that you've placed us in. And even beyond, as we think of those who are serving around the world, even today. And Lord, I pray that you'll help us to be an encouragement to so many as you see fit. Lord, bless our time this morning as Fred and the team come in just a moment. And Lord, I pray that you would encourage our hearts through the ministry of song and the fellowship of your word. And may you be honored and glorified. And it's in Christ's name we pray. 
Amen. You can remain standing. I'll let these men go back to their place. Fred is going to come and lead us in a time of worship here this morning as we begin our time together. Looking forward to what the Lord has in store for us here this morning. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. And it's a privilege for a number of us on staff to be able to sit in meetings and rub shoulders with these men on a monthly basis and even Sunday to Sunday. And we just thank, thank the Lord for their leadership. Um, we're here to worship and, and sing praise to our great God this morning. So as we begin, we're starting with the, the hymn, And Can It Be?
is what we need, Christ and the cross. Um, I sent out a, a Facebook post this week of a, a song that I wanted to introduce. It's not a new song. It was written two or three years ago, but maybe new to us uh, as we sing it this morning, entitled Behold Him, and I hope you'll be blessed by this as we sing it this morning. He who was before there was light Walked across the pages of time He who made every living thing Behold Him He who heard humanity's cry Left His throne to wake as a child He became like the least of us Behold Jesus, 
our risen Savior, beholding you as that. We just say thank you. Thank you for your gracious love and mercy that took Jesus to the cross and shed blood for our sin, our shame, our iniquities. And you paid those for us. And you're the risen Savior. 
We bless your name for that this morning, Lord. For it's in Jesus' mighty, wonderful name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. John's Gospel, chapter 1. As we open our Bibles this morning, whether in print or in the digital form, I hope that you will look. One of the things that John calls us to is to come and to see. And this is something that throughout this book, as we get deeper and deeper into it, even though we have taken time here in this first chapter to pause and to recognize so many of the things that John will begin to build upon and to use coming out of this first chapter, it's vital that we catch it, we understand it, so that we are prepared to see it as he unfolds these things for us. John chapter 1, and coming back again to verse 29, is where we look at a statement that comes from the voice of one coming out of the wilderness, as John the witness In this way that John, the author, brings him to light is he is a voice. He is one speaking as a representative of God's plan and purpose. And he wants the world in his day to see. And it's a sense of calling to behold this one, one that is greater than I am. And as he comes into verse 29, the next day, and you'll notice again, as we we mentioned, that there are going to be these next day statements leading us even into chapter 2. And on this next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The last time we spent some time focusing on the second half of that verse, and last time we talked about the world's condition, as seen in that part of the verse where it says here the understanding of the sin of the world. Thinking about it in the world's condition and the way they are presented and what they are in the standing of their situation of life, it puts us all into a perspective. It puts us all into an understanding that we are born encased in a nature that at its very core gets excited to sin. Sin is that rebellion against the character. It is a rebellion against the very person of God. Sin is me choosing my desire. Sin is me desiring what I want over the perfect desire that comes from the holy and the pure God. And so that is our condition. As he says there in verse 29 again, this is the one who comes to take away this sin, the sin of the world. Sin is about me living as if God is non-existent. And at best that God occupies only a compartment of my life. There's so many that are religious, so many that have the baggage of religiosity, but they've never understood the freedom that comes, the liberty of truly knowing the sufficiency of God's grace. Sin attempts to create a world of my design, and yet that world is always beleaguered with the effects of sin, and thus is filled with the conflict and strife that comes along with it. God had already made it clear to Adam and Eve way back at the dawn of time what would happen if they chose to violate his command. An edict of death that would come, and once Adam ate of that one tree that he was not supposed to eat of, the spiritual separation became apparent, and the creep of the physical death began to take hold upon humanity. And then it became part of our DNA. We, too, or sinners. But immediately God came to where humanity was. And what I love about the story that Genesis portrays, the understanding of what happens in that situation, 
is that God came to where humanity was and in their shame and in their sin, God becomes apparent. He stood there and hope was offered. And this is where the good news comes in. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is to look at the Lamb's solution. The use of this title by John the Witness is a very unusual one, considering that it was never used to reference the Messiah. Nowhere in the Old Testament, only now in this intertestament period where you come and you see John as that voice coming out of the wilderness, does he give to us a title? He gives to us a description of this one, the Lamb of God. Considering this thought, John the witness comes forth with the description of the person who had come to take away the sin of the world. And going back into chapter 1, look again at verse 14. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, this is the same John that said these words in verse 29. He testified about him, the word this Messiah, this coming one, the Lamb of God, he cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And so the title, Lamb of God, has left a lot of scholars perplexed. That's the beauty of reading scholars. They just got to find something to get perplexed about. But they struggle over how do you interpret this? What, what is John the witness referring to here? What is this lamb? What specifically is intended by this title, by this reference? And in our understanding, we have to appreciate how would the first century Jew and how would that first century Jew, as they're listening to John make this declaration, how would they interpret this? And there were, in fact, I believe that there were Gentiles who were amongst this group. How would the Gentiles that were there understand what John is saying about this one that's coming? And then we as a church people, sometimes we get so used to hearing it in our very Christian understanding in our post-cross culture, how do we interpret this? But perhaps you're here and you didn't grow up in church. Maybe you're new to the faith. Maybe the faith is something that, boy, you're just even now starting to realize that there is something here that maybe the Spirit of God, and you don't even know who that is. It's, it's, he's calling you to understand some things, and, and you're listening to something like, how do you interpret this? What does it mean, Lamb of God who takes away my sin? And that is what I want us to focus on here today. There's another book that John wrote called the Book of Revelation. It's the very last book in your Bible. And in the Book of Revelation, John records a conversation that he had with one of the guides that was with him, showing him the events that are to come. In Revelation chapter 7, and for the sake of time, I'll put the words here upon the screen. He says in verse 13, Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Those who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? He's drawing John to ask the, answer this question in verse 14. He says, I, my Lord, you know. 
And the, the one who asked the question, he said it to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Verse 15, for this reason they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them and they will hunger no longer nor thirst any more nor will the sun beat down on them nor any heat. Notice then verse 17, for the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd. Interesting exchange here. The lamb now becomes the shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. C.H. Dodd, in his classic commentary and work on John's gospel, he notes here in verses 14 and 17 that you have the lamb of sacrifice and the lamb as a shepherd. And what John's gospel does is open the door for us to see Christ, the Messiah, as a fulfillment to all that the millennia had begged to present the lamb and how the lamb, how the sacrifice was used to illustrate the divide between God and man as well as the solution for man to come into his holy presence. How can I, as a wicked creature, as one that has rebelled against God, how can I have any hope of ever allowing, being allowed by God to be in his presence when I am the one that am the sinner? And thus we needed the solution of the lamb. In Scripture, you're going to find that the lamb is a foreshadow of a coming Messiah. And you can see it presented in several different ways. In fact, the Lexham Bible Dictionary states that it is unclear what John had in mind when he spoke of the lamb of God, but there are four dominant interpretations of this. And I want to just kind of walk through each one of those and, and highlight some things about how it is that we can look and see what John the witness comes out of the wilderness saying about this one. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What could John be referring to? And so let's go into these. First of all, he could be referring to the daily sin offering in the temple. This is something that we, just, we really just don't have a, a, any measure of comprehension of. It'd be like in downtown Chattanooga having some temple set up and there is a perpetual cloud, a perpetual smoke, a, a fire that is always there burning. There is something that is consistently every day being burnt upon this, offer, this altar as a sacrifice for the people. Usually when we think of fires in a downtown area, we put it out. In this case, they wanted to stay burning because it was, an, it was identified with a place of forgiveness, a place of atonement. It was this place where God's presence would be seen and witnessed and it would deal with the sin of the people. And each time a lamb was used in some ceremony or in some ritual, it was always pointing towards a final sacrifice that would ultimately come to be offered as that final display of God's grace and mercy to the world. But until that final sacrifice could be offered, those who had put their faith in God's revealed revelation to that point would bring an animal to deal with sin. In his writing about the Lamb of God, Walter Elwell noted in the Old Testament, most passages referring to a lamb speak of sacrifice. 85 out of 96 of them, when lamb is referred to as speaking of a sacrifice and combined with the reference to the taking away of sin, 
It is difficult to see how a reference to the sacrificial atonement is to be rejected. When thinking about what we read here, to think about what is going on in the eyes and the beholding and the vision of the Jewish people there in that first century culture, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world would draw their attention to something sacrificial. And perhaps what John the Witness is pointing out is that this is the perfect sacrifice. This is the one that all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament were pointing to when it pointed out man's failure to uphold the holiness and the character of God. Here comes one who can fulfill all of that. The sacrifice of atonement. Every time a person brought an animal or every time a priest offered a sacrifice for the sin of the people, they were reminded of their need and the constant breach and the gap between them as humanity and him as God. But Christ came to bridge that gap, to satisfy that need once and for all. And I love how Peter put it in referring to this in 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. He who became flesh and dwelt among us did so in order that he might become for us that lamb of sacrifice to die for us because if I died for my sin, I got what I deserved. But if Jesus does it, he provides something that I don't deserve, grace and mercy. And it's very possible that John the witness is declaring that Jesus is the solution for man's sin problem as a final sacrifice in the fashion of these animal sacrifices. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is what Jesus is offering to every single one of us born of a woman that if we are sinners, which we are by God's declaration This is his willing sacrifice for you. Have you ever received it? But not only the thought of a temple sacrifice, but John could have also been referring to a second attribute, and that is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Isaiah chapter 53 is a powerful chapter and reveals a lot about, in a very prophetic way, about the coming Messiah. In Isaiah 53, in verse 6, it says, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. And by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, and yet he was with a rich man in his death. And because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. 
And therefore I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Perhaps this is what John is referring to as Isaiah would magnify and think about the suffering servant. It's very similar to what John would later on talk about in chapter 12. Go over to chapter 12 of John there. And notice what John will later on write in this book as we come to it later on in verse 35. John chapter 12 and verse 35. In John 12 verse 35 he says, So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. And he who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. And while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. And these things Jesus spoke as he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. And this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And for this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their heart, so they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted. And I healed them. All throughout this book, Isaiah is becoming a prominent source of material for John to think about what it is to have Christ as part of the the plan and the purpose of God as he is revealed in this sense perhaps what John is doing is he is bringing to light everything that Isaiah has foretold everything that he has foreshadowed this coming suffering servant John the witness is perhaps quoting a thought here to realize the solution of the prophet's message to realize the hope that comes is found in this one. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the Lamb of God that is led to slaughter for the sins of the people. It's the same word that is used in the Septuagint that is the translation of the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek. It's the same word that Acts 8.32 also uses when translating the same message of Isaiah 58. And Peter also uses the same word when he wrote in 1 Peter 1 and verse 19, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And as John, the witness, comes out of the wilderness, he declares that we are to look, we are to take notice. This one who suffers on our behalf, this one who bears our transgressions, this one who takes our iniquities upon himself, this suffering one suffers for us, for our sin. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Has he taken away your sin? That leaves us with two more possibilities, though. As we think about what John could also have been referring to, he could also be referring to third the Lamb of Abraham. You remember that story in Genesis 22, right? God comes to Abraham in a vision, comes to him with a voice, and he tells him, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son Isaac, to a place I'm going to tell you, and I want you to sacrifice him there. Now, I want to tell you right now, that was very uncharacteristic because God had never allowed for human sacrifice. Now, the challenge of reading the scripture is that you don't get really any of the sense of struggle. 
But I have to believe that Abraham was still as human as I am, and I have to believe that he wrestled with what God had asked him to do, to take the very son of promise, the very son that would give to me the lineage that you had promised to me, and you're going to ask me to now sacrifice this very son. And what's beautiful about this is that later on in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews gives us a commentary on this, and he basically understands that what Abraham is saying, that God, if you even take his life, I believe that you are capable of raising him from the dead. And so Abraham takes his son, his only son, and he takes him into this journey. He takes him to a place where he is getting ready to offer a sacrifice. Abraham obeys the voice of God. They come to a place known as Moriah, which is interesting. But we remember how on the way to the place of sacrifice, Isaac stops Abraham and he asks a question. It's found in Genesis 22, verse 7. He says, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood. But where is, now in this translation it's translated lamb, but the word really is more of the sheep. It's, it's not the same word that's used over here in John, if you were to translate. It's not translated in the Greek with the same word, but it carries with the idea of that specific animal, of, the, of, of a sheep. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Then Abraham aptly replies in the very next verse, Abraham said, God will provide, notice the language, for himself, the lamb, for the burnt offering, my son. And so the two of them walked on together. And they arrived to the place of sacrifice. Abraham makes ready the altar. He binds the hands and feet of his son and he places them on the altar, which I believe is probably one of the greatest evidences of real faith and submission in the heart of the father. And the knife in Abraham's hand is about to come down and take the life of his son when God holds up Abraham. The test is over, Abraham. Look behind you. Back there in the thorns. And I love all the imagery that God brings, and he brings it all the way to a cross event. Even with the thorns wrapped around the head of this ram, there is the sacrifice that has been made ready. Not Isaac. Take that ram and offer it instead where God had prepared a lamb. I think there is also significance, the ram, the male, this one that would come, this man-child that would be born, this one. What a foreshadow of an event that would take place almost to the spot where one's life is saved through the offering of another life And very similar to what Paul would pick up on in Romans chapter 8 and verse 32, he who did not spare his own son. Let that sink in for a minute. What our God was willing to do, where he was not going to withhold what was necessary, but was willing to offer his son so that our sons could have hope, so that our lives could find deliverance, so that we could know forgiveness. And that this God being willing to not spare his son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Perhaps this is what John was saying when he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For God has prepared a lamb. 
And this is his unique lamb. The human destruction can come to an end. But there's one last possible meaning behind the use of the identity of a lamb being used of Jesus. And that is number four, the Passover lamb. There's a lot of scholars who debate if this is perhaps the strongest meaning behind what John the witness is saying. John the author is going to take much time later on inside of the book. In fact, we get to chapter 13 of John and you spend chapters 13, 14, and 15 probably even perhaps even into 16 but they're on a journey then by somewhere in 16 to 17 and they're heading to the garden of gethsemane but it's all surrounded by an event that is happening in the jewish calendar called passover the events that are leading up to the death of christ uses a lot of passover terminology and imagery in fact if you we're to look at chapter 2 towards the end after the, 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 the miracle of the turning of water into wine. Right after that, he is in Jerusalem for what John records as the first Passover event that Jesus has really publicly in the ministry that John will record for us is a Passover event there where he cleanses the temple. We're going to see that a lot of what John deals with is arguably surrounded by a very strong connotation of Passover language. And so some argue that the Passover was not a sin event, but we do see that Christ speaks of his fulfilling the Passover, which does, not, does also speak of deliverance and redemption out of captivity. You remember the Passover is that event where God commanded them to sacrifice an animal, to sacrifice a lamb, to have it ready so that that plague, and when the angel would come and they would pass over the people, it was one that in this case would pass over not just the Egyptians, but over all of Israel. And if the blood is not applied to the doorposts of the house, the firstborn child would suffer death. It was the consequence that would happen upon the entire land but because of this blood's application, because of the death of this one, an entire household would not suffer the anguish, the loss of that firstborn child. To know that death is staring you in the face and that with the blood applied, there is safety from the curse. And all of this is summarized in the person who came to be that substitute. The statement of John as he declares Behold, the Lamb of God. Summarizes basically all that the previous generations had witnessed in every sacrifice of every lamb and even the other sacrifices that day after day and year after year offered to atone for the sins of those who have placed their faith in God. And here is the Lamb of God. This Lamb will be the sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world. This lamb takes away our sin. And the question is begged though, have you personally placed your faith? Do you believe that Jesus can remove the debt of your sin, the sin that you are guilty of? Do you notice that this lamb stands as the only one that God has sent to provide for us what we could not provide for ourselves. For himself, he provided a lamb. What no lamb could ultimately give by the sacrifice of its life, Jesus could provide by the sacrifice of his life.
I beg of you this morning to make sure that you have come to a place where you see Jesus. Behold him. Behold him. See the Lamb of God who is the power, who has the authority, who has the ability to take away your sin. Notice him this morning. And if you need help and you need to know more about what that means, don't leave here in doubt this morning. Come talk to somebody. Come talk to me. Talk to Fred. We have people that will love to share what the meaning of the gospel is and the hope of what Jesus Christ can do. Because it's not about what you have done. It's about what he has done for you. He has promised that he is willing to take away your sin. Let's stand together for a word of prayer. Father, I pray that, Lord, we would recognize the sufficiency of your sacrifice and behold you as our hope, as our redeemer, as our deliverer. The Lord, we would understand that you came to fulfill everything that all of those Old Testament people had been doing for years, from the time of the patriarchs to the time of Moses to the time of the Levites and the high priests, all the way down through all those generations. And every time you began to reveal more of your revelation, you talked about the cost. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And though you had always provided something that would for a time appease and would cover you never had something sufficient enough to completely eradicate the debt of our sin until Jesus came. And our hope is fixed in him. Our, our supply of grace is firmly found in what Jesus has provided for us. And so, Lord, for that one that's here today, that all their life they have been trying to make you happy with them. For that one that stands here in front of me and says, you don't know what I've done. You don't know my thought life. You don't know the actions of my life. You, there is no way God would ever forgive me. Even for that believer that's here struggling with the fear of doubt and suspicion that maybe they've done something this time that God could not forgive. Lord, let it be clear in our hearts of what you have accomplished and what this book of John is going to point us to is that you are greater than our sin. You're more capable than we are of dealing with our sin. And so, Lord, in humility, push down the pride and in a simple trust of faith, open the hearts and the eyes of those that are blinded to the truth to see what you are capable of doing for them. And Lord, for that believer that's here that put their faith and trust in you a long time ago, but doubting even today, I pray that you would help them to understand the sufficiency of your grace is not resting in their sufficiency. But you are the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Lord, let us behold you today and praise you and thank you that I no longer stand as an enemy of God, but I am received wholeheartedly as your child. Speak as only your voice can speak. And let us behold the word of God today. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
it's such a joy to share this time with you this morning. And uh, in the next few minutes, we're going to begin a little fellowship time after this back in the fellowship hall. We invite everyone, especially our visitors, to join us back there. We'd love to speak to you and greet you this morning. Lord bless you. Have a great afternoon.